0: Transient symptoms of depersonalisation and derealisation are very common in the general population, often during periods of stress or fatigue, with one study finding nearly a quarter of people reported a brief episode over the past year. However, patients who experience depersonalisation and and derealisation often have difficulty in describing their symptoms. A practice pointer published in the BMJ last week discusses how doctors can explore these symptoms and how to think about diagnosing and discussing current treatment options with patients. I'm Kate Adlington, Clinical Editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined today by the three authors of this article. Elaine Hunter, Consultant Clinical Psychologist based at the Maudsley Hospital in London. Hello, Elaine. Hello. Jane Charlton, who has experienced depersonalisation, derealisation disorder over a number of years on and off. Thank you for joining us, Jane. Thank you. And Tony David, Professor of Cognitive Neuropsychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience in London. Hello. Hi. I'm also joined by Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, who has also experienced depersonalisation and derealisation symptoms herself. Thank you for joining us as well, Fiona. Hi, Kate. So to start perhaps it would be useful to ask Jane and Fiona to share a little bit about their experiences of depersonalization, derealization Jane, perhaps we can start with you.
1: So um, for me, um, symptoms of depersonalization started when I was 18 years old. I'm 33 now, so it's a a fair while back. And they happened after an incident of taking cannabis. And I I suppose I felt the normal symptoms of of taking a drug, so the normal uh, um, experience of being stoned. Um, But I also felt um, a number of other uh, symptoms of panic, So I felt I couldn't breathe properly. I felt that everything was delayed around me. I felt that if I moved my eyes from one point of the room to the other, I was focusing and couldn't drag my eyes away to another object. And it was a really, really distressing experience that evening. And then what happened subsequently is I woke up the next morning, having finally managed to fall asleep, and I hadn't come out of that experience. So I essentially felt like I was still experiencing the effects of the cannabis. Um, And that continued then uh, for three years. And that three years for me was a time when I essentially, um, I would say I felt disconnected from everything around me. So I felt disconnected um, both from my my chronology, if you like, so my my memories, uh, my current experiences and my ability to sort of envisage a future. And I also felt like an emotional disconnection, so when I was looking at people that I knew were very precious in my life, I wasn't feeling what I had felt previous to that. And then I also felt sort of disconnected from my environment, so I'd also, I would usually feel particularly disorientated, especially if I was going somewhere, somewhere new. And I think I sought to explain that by articulating the physical symptoms, so saying I feel like I can't see things properly, or everything looks like it's in two dimensions, or I can't I can't remember things like I used to. And it was much harder to articulate the sort of the emotional or or, or psychological aspects of it. Um, And I think that's perhaps because in some ways and sort of in terms of how you function, it feels like there's little change, but you still feel at the same time that there's been a sort of a, a fundamental shift. So I felt like before that point, I sort of, I existed, I engaged, I participated, and then I totally lost that feeling. I felt as if I was totally disengaged from myself and my life as I knew it. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you, Fiona.
2: Um it's very interesting because the describing of it is so difficult isn't it my my but yes the answer to your question is it does sound familiar my experience um w- was different in the sense that it came on after the birth of my first child um i was 38 at the time and the the, the birth was Um, perfectly fine except that it was a high forceps delivery with a very um, intense um, epidural so i was completely numb during the procedure um, but a very large baby and high forceps delivery Um, and i think my first thoughts that something that my my experience of the world had changed was looking in the mirror and looking seeing this person looking back at me that was slightly alarming realizing that was me but it was a sudden it was a different experience to having looked previously before then and also with my hands bathing my baby um bathing him just the hands didn't feel they I could see them and feel them but they didn't look or they didn't look like my hands and um so I had this sense from then on really of uh, it was a feeling of the, I mean, I can say unreal now, but I didn't know that word. Um, a feeling of separation, a, a, a feeling of looking through a clear fog. There was no visual impairment, but there was a, there was a definite sense of a separation. Um, and I, and I did think I was going mad, but I sort of thought, well, you know, um, life is also different when you have a baby, so you sort of, you sort of manage and and just to backtrack a bit rachel cusk who's an author who's written a book called the life's work about her own experience of maternity and she had a traumatic cesarean section her first uh, an emergency cesarean section um And I was in the midst of this wondering what on earth um, this was and read this small column that she wrote in, in The Times, I think, where she said that after the birth of her first child, she was left with feelings of unreality that lasted until the birth of her second child. And this was – I read this in the midst of when I was not knowing what was going on. And it was so helpful to have a, a word, a phrase, feelings of unreality – um And I was working and I just kept on going, I had the baby, I had the busy job Um and I think at some point I rationalised it as, as postnatal depression, anxiety and somehow being able to say that this was a symptom of that was much more helpful than thinking it was a thing in itself. Um The other thing was that my f- mother had um gently talked about a thing that she called her dream feeling, which for her had come on when she was 14. She had been bereaved of her own mother when she was about nine or 10. Um And in her teenage years, she developed this dream feeling which lived with her on and off all through her life. And she um never really mentioned it, not wanting to sort of bother us with it. But I think it was quite intense and rather... Did 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 you know cause her difficulty and she had Freudian psychoanalysis all sorts of things through her life which she was very open about. But um, and subsequently other members of my family have have experienced either temporary or more per- longer term um, experiences. And asking one of them, who's now 17, one of my relatives, um, what this feels like, uh, he said it feels like you're not looking through your own eyes, which I thought was an amazingly Good for me—a description of exactly how it felt to me. I think the other thing, uh, just to bring up, but bef- before we hear from um, uh, from Tony and Elaine, is is the difficulty in describing it to other people, um, and and in particular the difficulty describing it to doctors. Um, and actually, I didn't bother if that's not the right way. I didn't bother to go to a doctor with this. I, I have come from a very medical family and I think I just thought well I can manage this. I, I have a meditation practice and, and I knew that anxiety was something that, that, that was contributing to this. I got the sense that was a problem. So throughout the, my those three years I did meditate and it, I think that in the end was what was most helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But with this relative I've mentioned, this teenager who, who a relative of mine who's suffering from it, trying to help him, talking to doctors, that was very difficult because with the best will in the world, going to a GP and trying to explain what was going on, they don't have there's no language to explain it. They don't really didn't really know how to respond, which is why. When I spoke to Tony um, about this, uh, and and suddenly there's an institute that's, that's looking into this exact issue, um, and the idea of actually having an article to try to present this, discovering how common it is as an experience. I think I think that was really the intention was to to give doctors a, a language with which to talk about this and to talk to you know talk to patients about it and give mm-hmm. them a sense of hope around it because it can be intermittent. It can can recover completely as has been my experience. So-
0: that that might be a good point to move on and bring Tony and Elaine in and and ask actually as Fiona suggested perhaps it's th- these are symptoms that are not as familiar as they might be um with doctors GPs who be speaking to patients can we give a sense of how common the symptoms are the disorder is
3: well you said how common is the symptom or disorder mm-hmm. and you know it, mm-hmm. that's um one of the complexities uh because the symptoms I think are rather common, and if you if you simply survey a population and describe those symptoms and say, "Have you ever felt like that?" usually the proportional to say yes I, I, I have had that is up in seventy percent mm-hmm. um, it's very very high higher in younger people uh, so the actual how common is the syndrome. Um, we, we usually find that it's around 1% or 2% of the adult population. Mm. So a GP probably would expect to see um, two or three patients a year.
0: Mm. And and do you find, obviously, as we've heard, people have very different experiences mm. of depersonalization, derealization, describe it in very different terms. Are there any kind of useful phrases or useful questions that you could suggest to to doctors and um, to ask to just start the conversation
4: yeah I think that's really helpful because as um, Fiona and Jane are both saying it's actually very difficult to put it into words and I think that's one of the reasons that maybe it's not being picked up by GPs um, if you don't really know how to describe what you're experiencing and then if you're on the other end and you're not really no know, knowing exactly what the person's trying to say to you. I think that's why sometimes people do get misdiagnosed as having anxiety or depression that may be part of the picture um, because understandably the clinician would kind of know what to do with those Um, and so they might kind of uh, prioritise treating those more than this odd thing that someone's trying to describe. But also, I mean, what you were saying, Fiona, about um, how the fear that people might have. So if you if you're frightened that what you might be just about to tell your GP might indicate that you're kind of are going mad in some way. That might also inhibit somebody from from disclosing it. Um, And also sometimes people talk about if there is a, a drug induced onset again, they, they kind of feel that they're going to be blamed for taking some drugs um, and so all of these things will kind of inhibit the diagnosis process. Um, so it's very useful if there are some things that are, that the, the if the GP or the clinician knows a little bit about this and that's really why we've, we've been very keen on writing this article. So i suppose if someone's talking about things like feeling a bit dreamlike or not recognizing themselves in the mirror or things not feeling real them not feeling real the outside world not feeling real those might sort of just send some alarm bells that this might be some someone's trying to describe depersonalization or derealization so it's worth Following through on that a little bit more and, and asking some particular questions about a sense of unreality about themselves or a sense of unreality about the external world. And and in the article, we've got a couple of key sentences that you could use to ask, to prompt. And usually the experience of people being asked those questions um, a bit as Fiona's just been saying, and I know Jane has said this as well, it's actually very helpful to get a diagnosis. It's a huge sense of relief for most people um, when they they actually get a label put on something and then it's a label then that they can use to describe what they're feeling, that they can look on the internet and find out that other people have got this, which helps with the sense of isolation that people might have.
1: I would um, endorse and advocate everything Elaine's just said, um, particularly around it's my experience that with it being something that's difficult to articulate and with often, certainly in my case I presented with a lot of anxiety and possibly some depression as well, and with those being very evident and more understood, My experience as a GP or a psychiatrist has has shifted much more to wanting to deal with the anxiety or the depression because perhaps they have much more experience with that and recognize it and know something about it. But unfortunately, that does dovetail um, unhelpfully with the fact that diagnosis, um, certainly for me, was a key part of my recovery.
0: And does that ring true with your um, experience, Fiona, having a name for for this?
2: Very much, and for me, the the, the derealisation, or at least this this, as I said, the phrase um, feelings of unreality, it, it absolutely immediately I said, ah, oh, that's what it is, and and there was a huge sense of relief. I didn't mean it wasn't continued to be a, didn't continue to be a very difficult thing to live with, and but at least I just thought I've just got to keep going. Um, and, and actually, I think that is, we'll get on to the advice you give patients. But for me, that was, that was the answer one, just you keep on seeing, you know, living a life and uh, carrying on um, working through it rather than focusing on it. But definitely that sense of, of, of recognition and relief in, in that was huge. Mm.
3: I think you both said about the fear of going mad. Um, and I think, again, that's a very common worry um, that sometimes inhibits people from coming forward um, or just simply fearing the worst. Um, uh, And it's a very, very common statement to hear. And sometimes, as you said, just acknowledging that this is a condition we've heard about, perhaps we don't fully understand, but um, it's not going mad it's something different it's a it's a mental health condition but it is uh not going to lead to inexorable disintegration Uh, so i think that is very important Mm. people also sometimes if it comes on very quickly very suddenly which it quite often does people assume that something's happened in their brain Um, i must have had a stroke or you know something a seizure Uh, And that's a very common experience and then often uh, the person has a lot of investigations Perhaps that was that's fine Um, But sometimes that simply uh, heightens the sense that there's something terribly deeply wrong that even you know the 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 expert doesn't quite recognize Mm -hmm. So those sorts of things can be allayed I think by an understanding of of the condition
0: I wondered if, thinking a little bit more about the symptoms, certainly in the article you talk about categorising all different ways that the symptoms can occur, sometimes in conjunction with other physical and mental health problems, sometimes on their own as a primary symptoms. What other sort of important things are there to establish in a first assessment to kind of help you think about what might be causing the symptoms?
3: Well, there are some very, uh, rarely a physical condition can be, Important uh, a neurological condition, a form of epilepsy, for example, migraine is also commonly cited, so it's important to to have a, a to to understand the person and their health quite broadly before making any diagnosis and then zeroing in on the mental health side, um, I mean some of the experiences that are described are very peculiar and although uh you've you 've all described how finding the right expression, the right metaphor um, can be difficult what 's amazing is how that the same metaphors come up again and again and have done for a hundred years um, and in a way, when we hear certain phrases, we think ah well, that's that's depersonalization but if someone was saying that they think that not just things around them aren't real but there's some controlling force that's changing everything or that my body is being uh, manipulated by some other force other unlike in de- derealization where the person says i know it's still me i know it's me that's moving and when i look at my hands i know they're my hands it's just they just don't feel quite right so g- getting that subtle distinction is important
2: famous phrase isn't there as if instead of it is so exactly. the one i'm the, the relative of mine i quoted it's mm. as if i'm not looking through yes. my own eyes as opposed to i'm not looking through my yeah. eyes is that that's a that, that
3: is a very useful uh distinct distinguisher
0: elaine maybe you can sort of start helping us think about what what options are there for management what how, what do you can what do you discuss with the patient about what where they can go and and how you can help them with the with these symptoms
4: yeah so one thing i think it's useful f- for the clinician to determine is how long this person the person has been experiencing the symptoms and then following on from what tony was saying seeing whether there's other conditions that it might be associated with in which case it would probably be worthwhile helping the person f- deal with the, the, the difficulties that they've got to see whether that relieves the depersonalization, derealisation symptoms. But for some people that can, and Jane will probably be able to say a little bit more about this, um, with some people that can end up the route that the clinicians go down, um, which actually delays the treatment of the depersonalisation, derealisation, which may be quite primary. So it might be useful to, to use as a little bit of a guideline what the patient is saying is the most problematic for them. A lot of people that we see, they'll say, I, I know that it's really the depersonalisation, derealisation, that's my main problem. And yes, I may have anxiety, I may have depression, but those things kind of come and go, but actually the depersonalization, derealisation stays. And it means that sometimes people really get delayed or going down you know, a sort of uh, track that's not particularly helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. And just before we bring Jane and Fiona back in to sort of maybe talk a little bit about their experiences of, of, of treatment, is, is there any kind of evidence-based or um, accepted treatment that has been shown to sort of have good effect or help people with the symptoms and how might doctors go about accessing those? Well there's no
4: definitive treatment unfortunately Um, but what we've got are quite a few things that can be tried and can in combination with each other be quite helpful on the more therapy side we've had cbt that we've specially adapted to help with depersonalization derealization and an open trial of that that we conducted actually quite some time ago now uh, showed that most people found that helpful Um, and we're also trialing uh, mindfulness approaches at the moment Um, and so and and other types of therapy as well so uh, things such as schema therapy um, and if there are if there is trauma as well to have some trauma therapy approaches
3: yeah in terms of medication there have only been very small uh, trials not none of them really adequate But what we do know is that in this group who have primary depersonalization, who maybe have some symptoms of anxiety and depression, but really the depersonalization is their main symptom. The uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor type medications uh, don't actually work. Um, In the people where, in a way... It's an experiment. If, if, if you're not sure which has come first, the depression, anxiety, or the depersonalization, it's reasonable to try one of those medications. And it may be that as the anxiety, depression lifts, the depersonalization symptoms will lift. But if that doesn't happen, it's probably more like a primary disorder. And we, we have done a little bit of work combining those sorts of medications with Uh, another drug Lamotrigine uh, which is used in epilepsy and in uh, bipolar affective disorder and there are some theoretical reasons why that combination might be effective and we have found that some patients do find it effective having said that there isn't a proper clinical trial that proves that that's the case that the drugs have side effects and need to be monitored carefully so I'm not uh, in any way suggesting that that's a panacea but it is something for i think a specialist to consider
0: mm. i know from one of the comments in the patient involvement box that went came alongside the article that the patients involved in writing the article wanted to stress that recovery is possible for many people with depersonalization derealization disorder um jane perhaps maybe we can um ask you kind of perhaps to share a little bit about your own experiences of treatment and recovery and otherwise.
1: Mm, mm, Sure, so um, probably two points I make on on recovery. One is um, some of the things I did which I thought were helpful but also um, what the process of recovery was like. Um, so uh, uh, immediately the place I was at is wondering, do I have a brain tumor? Is there something wrong with my brain? Do I have a stroke? So that was the first kind of box that I ticked. And when I'd established that, the next sort of milestone for me was, is this going to deteriorate? Am I going to be in a position where I can't look after myself going forward? And I sort of learned as the days, the weeks, the months started to go by that actually the the, the, the great thing about it and the awful thing about it from my point of view is it was quite stable. And then the, the next stage of recovery for me is that I would I was able to uh, engage in certain things and only realize after the event that I hadn't noticed that I had depersonalization at the time. And then the next phase for me is that I could catch myself in moments of being in my own body and being present. And then there was that kind of end stage where I could be on my own, it could be a stressful situation, and it could be not ideal surroundings, and I would be perfectly content, engaged, and at peace and present in my own body, um, which was just an utterly divine feeling um, after everything else. It was um, probably something we don't imagine we're going to lose, um, and, and but, but getting it back was, was a, um, really quite a beautiful feeling. And they were the kind of different stages of, of recovery. In terms of what helped me to get to that place, I think there was definitely that sense of I needed to know that I, that I um, wasn't going to lose all functionality and that I didn't have a, a an organic brain disorder of, of some description. Um, but then after that, there were two kind of main strategies, I suppose, which helped, and they're almost opposite in a way. So one was um, complete distraction. It was, I'm not going to turn these thoughts of what's happening around in my head, even if I'm not experiencing the world in the way that I had before, but in the way that I did before. I'm going to go out and I'm going to um, continue to do the activities that I want to do, that I need to do, that I would have been doing if I didn't have depersonalization. And I think that allowed me to kind of circumvent the depersonalization and, and to say, well, um, uh, okay, if I um, if I'm still doing everything I would have done before, the depersonalization doesn't have as much of an effect as I perhaps thought it would. So that was that was one technique, and then the other technique was really to um, to, to to use the CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, to look at what those thought patterns were, to look at the places that I was taking my thoughts, and to start to be able to challenge them and cut them off quite early. And I found that that process doing that process I had to be really very very disciplined so when I was in very deep depersonalization, I'd have to be doing that you know, hundreds of times a day because each thought was in some way a negative thought about depersonalization, And I'd have to be taking them and letting them go hundreds of times a day. But I found that engaging in that, I would eventually, although there was a delay, although I wouldn't see an immediate effect, I could get my recovery down from the three years that it initially took me down to a few months and then down to a matter of weeks in, in my third epi- episode. And I think they were probably... Um, the, 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 the stages and, and, and the tools I use to, to get better.
0: Thank you, Jane. I, I saw Fiona nodding um, at points while you were talking there. Do some of those experiences ring true for you as well?
2: Yes, very well described, Jane. I, um, I mean, i was just going to say briefly that the, my, my my young relative, who's now 17, the, the symptoms came on when he was 14, and um, the, it was very speaking just back to Tony's point about anxiety as a, as a f- sort of it was it was a it was an underlying anxiety that seemed to be very prevalent, very important at that um, stage. So he did uh, take an SSRI, and it did lift the anxiety, but the depersonalisation um, became manageable, but, but didn't really shift. So I think you know that that's a, a very interesting example. But I mean, he he's living with it and, and seems to be functioning well, and just tries not to talk about it. I think that that's his his approach. Um, I. Uh, Took a similar approach. I'm not someone who likes taking pills very much, or going to see doctors if I can avoid it. Being one myself, um, so and I think with the experience of my mother and this dream feeling, I just thought, well, well, I, I will I will carry on and. Um, in a funny sort of way, as you've said, Jane, the, the very fact of carrying on. I mean, you look normal <laughs> and and you talk and you carry on and you're able to function. I mean, uh, apparently, even to the extent my husband didn't realize, um, even though I'm sure I did tell him um, that I was um, having these strange um, feelings. But I, I do remember feeling a deep sense of despair at various points of the, this, this, this fear that it was going to be something much worse, that it was a disintegrative um, thing and And, as you've said, Jane, recognizing that it was stable was a was a terribly important thing to understand over a period of a, a couple of years, realizing that actually i you know this this was how I was going to be um what I did do, and I'm interested to hear from from Elaine about the the mindfulness thing i i I was already practicing meditation and and I think I sort of instinctively realized that that was going to be an important route for me and and I went on um i think two ten day uh, no, t- t- two week or ten day silent retreats because you know it's something I- I've done in the past, and um, it was a very h- difficult experience because without getting into too much of on this, it, it, there's a question about being in the moment, which is what mindfulness is about, and when you achieve that in meditation, it's the most lovely feeling. Um, but I already felt so. So in normal experience, you're not in the moment, but I already felt one removed from even that degraded normal experience. So um, it felt to me like such a, a huge mountain to climb to even get back to w- what one's used to living in. And and I felt a terrific sense of despair, but actually simply rather like carrying on with my normal life, carrying on almost pretending to meditate, pretending to be mindful, going through the motions. Um, I think that was hugely helpful. And by the time of my, the birth of my second child, Um, In my memory, it was at the birth that the things changed, but actually I found a diary entry a few weeks ago which showed me that that the symptoms went on for about a year of her life. So it was a much more gradual uh, thing, and I I couldn't tell you when it stopped except to suddenly think, gosh.
3: There are things that people do unwittingly that make it worse uh, and that that can be quite simple to undo so for example you can imagine that if a person is feeling that whenever they're in a social situation they're just going through the motions it's not really them it's very mechanical and that people will probably look at them and think you know what's wrong with them why are they being so odd Um, and then the next time you're in a social situation you're monitoring yourself to think Am I behaving oddly? Am I feel? do they think I'm peculiar? And there's nothing worse to, for not being in the moment when you're kind of monitoring yourself in that way. And so just learning that that's a common um, trap. I think some people can undo some of those secondary uh, secondary behaviors that maintain the symptom. And and so sometimes it can be quite some simple things about, you know, not falling into those traps that can be really helpful.
2: And someone told me, uh, well, I certainly found looking in a mirror. was. Uh, someone yes. said to me, don't look in a mirror. Yes. I mean, I, I discovered that for myself, but yes. I, I, I've told people who've asked my advice, I said, just don't look in the mirror.
3: <laughs> I, exactly. What could be worse is staring in the mirror just to try and find that something's not quite right. It just makes you detach from yourself. Uh, So that's a very good example again.
0: Thank you very much. I think that would be a a fantastic point to finish on, actually. Um, Well, thank you again, um, everyone, for joining us. So the article that we've been discussing, Depersonalization, Derealization, Assessment and Management, is now available on thebmj.com.